The next case is ARP Materials v. U.S., number 212176. Good morning. Good morning. We represent ARP Materials and Harrison Steel Castings in this consolidated appeal. If there ever was a prototypical case for jurisdiction under 1581I, this consolidated case is it. The subject matter was and is the administration of tariffs, duties, fees, or taxes on the importation of merchandise for reasons other than the raising of revenues, as it involves retaliatory duties assessed against Chinese IPR practices under the Trade Act of 1974, Section 301. The subject matter is more specifically the ministerial administration of the decisions of the USTR by customs relative to China 301D refunds that the USTR had ordered to mitigate harm to U.S. and industries as a result of the assessment of the 301 fees. Before reaching an inescapable conclusion that 1581I jurisdiction applies, all of the other subparagraphs, A through H, must be found to be manifestly inadequate. In this case, the CIT settled on 1581A under the oversimplified adage, if you can file a protest with customs, you have 1581 jurisdiction in the CIT if customs denies the protest. Well, liquidation is a precondition to any protest, and any liquidation can be protested, but that doesn't automatically lead to a valid protest. There are numerous cases that have been cited in all briefs which have found that customs acted ministerially, and a ministerially performed act by customs is not protestable. Even if it made one of the seven decisions that are listed under the protest statute, which includes liquidation. The government has had some difficulty with our citing... Mr. Cain, Mr. Cain, what do you want in this case? We want the case to be remanded to the Court of International Trade because... What do you want the court to do if this were an I case? Do you want the court to order that the liquidation be reliquidated to give you a refund? Well, under 28 U.S. Code 2634, I think the Court of International Trade has equitable authority to grant money judgments. We cited actual entries to demonstrate our injury in standing in the Court of International Trade, but this is really not an entry-specific case. Well, that's what I don't understand, Mr. Cain, because if you were asking for some kind of broad declaration or something and not anything further, I might see how you could get under I, but at the end of the day, you want the liquidation decision redone in a refund, right? Well, that would be the ideal outcome in the final analysis, but we think that since there are at least nine other cases that are suspended under this case, the Court of International Trade either has to be directed by your court or on its own to tell customs that it can't fire protests as it refunds of Section 301 to be refunds ordered by the USTR. But customs has liquidated the duties that they collected for 301 
And the only way, and that's a final decision unless it's challenged. We don't have any authority, do we, to overturn that final decision? Well, if we look to the decisions of this court in Shinde Corporate America in 2004, 2008, and 2010, the conflict between the two jurisdictional bases, 1581I and 1581A, was resolved by this court twice in favor of 1581I after the Court of International Trade had dismissed on finding that it was 1581A. What was involved there was an instruction from the Department of Commerce to Customs to liquidate some entries after an administrative review had been conducted, and the calculations that were determined in the administrative review were incorrectly transmitted to Customs, and Customs liquidated the entries. The court held that the jurisdiction lay under 1581I. Ultimately, the case was settled, and in the 2010 decision, the Court of International Trade was, the case was remanded again to the Court of International Trade to find the amount of equal access to justice attorney's fees that the plaintiff was entitled to because of the Customs and government recalcitrance in insisting over and over again that 1581A was the proper mode of jurisdiction. But my problem is, in this case, the ultimate remedy you want is your money back, and you can get your money back if you protest the decision. So how is A not available in the right remedy, and certainly not manifestly inadequate? It's not a protestable decision because it's not a decision by Customs. That's just plain wrong that it's not a protestable decision because there have been protests of these decisions, and you've gotten refunds of these. It's just some of them, you've missed the time deadline. Your Honor, if the government made money without having to go to court on the basis of filing a protest, and the protest could be filed timely, we saw no objection to doing that. As Napoleon or Caesar or one famous general after another said, when your enemy is making an error, you don't correct him in the middle of it. It wouldn't serve any purpose for us to argue with the government saying that they shouldn't be required in 1581A protests, 19 U.S.C. 14 protests, if they wanted to give us the money back. But in this situation... Mr. Kennedy, excuse me, this is Judge Lynn. I'm having the same problem that Judge Hughes is having because ultimately what you're after is a determination by Customs that these goods should be reliquidated, and they are liquidated, and there is... Our law is very clear that once the goods are liquidated, that's a final determination that can only be changed if Customs reliquidates. So it seems to me that... And you clearly have the opportunity to do that through a protest. May I respond to that, Your Honor? Yes, please. 1581A requires the filing of a valid protest. A valid protest requires a decision by Customs, timeliness, and specificity in distinct information. The decision of the Supreme Court in Davies v. Arthur, when Chester A. Arthur was the collector in 1877, 
held that unless the protest sets forth distinctly and specifically the ground on which the objection to the amount claimed, it fails to require the protest statute. The purpose of the protest statute is to point out to the officers of customs the precise errors of fact or law which render the exaction of duty unauthorized. That case was cited by the court in 1999 in Courtney Aronson versus U.S. where it was held that if the protester didn't provide the classification that it wanted customs to substitute against the original classification that was used at entry, I'm sorry, at liquidation, it was an invalid protest. And our client, most specifically in this case with Harrison, Harrison had entries of base metal fittings that were not excluded until more than 180 days after the liquidation of the entries. So there was no ability to file a protest with the information about the classification that we wanted them to use at customs in lieu of the one that was used at entry. And when the exclusion is granted, there's a Federal Register notice, and along with the Federal Register notice, there is a designation of a new Chapter 99 classification indicating that the merchandise has qualified for an exclusion. And there was no way we could have done that. It's just the fact that you can file a protest doesn't mean that you have a valid protest. It would have been the only protest. And for 53,000... Was your client seeking an exclusion at the time of the liquidation decision? Was our client? Yes. No, they individually were not. There were 53,000 exclusion requests. 87% of the exclusion requests were denied. If we follow the guidance of the Court of International Trade... If you weren't seeking an exclusion at the time the entry was done and it was liquidated, then it was correct at the time. You're trying to get the effect of an exclusion request filed by a different entity after the fact. But, I mean, there's guidance in all of this 301 implementation program that would have allowed you, if you had a basis to seek an exclusion for this entry, even if it hadn't been granted, to protest it and allow customs to suspend that. Isn't that correct? The exclusions under 301 were product-specific and more than product-specific. They were not just the HDS number. They were a specific description of the merchandise. We have a client that made 19 exclusion requests under a single HDS number. I don't know why that matters. If your client wasn't specifically seeking the exclusion and asked to suspend the... If they were, they could have asked to suspend the liquidation. If not, you're trying to get the effect of something you weren't even challenging at the time. But everyone's entitled to that. That was the basis for the government telling people that they could file protests. But, counsel, aren't they... Counsel, aren't they entitled to it under a particular procedure? It's a particular procedure that has to be followed in order to be entitled to it if you yourself are not going to seek the exclusion in front of the USTR, right? 
Correct, correct. Well, the procedure that was put in place was the protest procedure, which was a square peg for a round hole. You know, the government claims that the only way that they could have issued refunds under the refund regime of the USDR was through protest methods. And that's not true. There's ample authority for customs and other agencies to promulgate regulations that would have allowed the public the opportunity to point out the problem that we have in this very case, where if the USDR took more than 494 days to render a decision on an exclusion, people who made the entry on the first day that the exclusion was, I'm sorry, the first day that that particular list was in effect, they'd be unable to get a refund under the protest because they wouldn't have the information they needed to file a protest and would have no way of knowing that the USDR would actually issue an exclusion on that merchandise. I have one more question for you, which is I noticed that in your brief you have some sort of APA challenge, but I'm looking, when I looked at your briefs below, I didn't see that clearly spelled out. Did you argue that below? I don't think we did detail it below. All right. Mr. Cain, you're well into your rebuttal time. Why don't you save the rest of it and we'll hear from the government. May it please the court. The trial court's decision should be affirmed as it correctly determined that it did not have jurisdiction pursuant to Section 1581I because it would have had jurisdiction pursuant to Section 1581A if appellants had timely protested CBP's liquidations. As the trial court succinctly put it, appellants... Let me just interrupt you and get to the last point Mr. Cain raised, or at least what I heard him to be raising, which is that he's challenging, and maybe he didn't preserve it, but he's challenging not just the exclusion and the refund in this particular case, but the entire way this program was implemented by USTR and Customs that didn't set up a separate refund process and forced it to go through the protest system. If that was his argument, could he bring that in a different way than through a protest if it's kind of a facial challenge to the way the program was set up? Well, I'll try and take your honors answer in two parts. Specifically with regard to what appellants did, I think your honors noted that they sort of vaguely alluded to APA in their brief below and then again here, but they didn't really raise an APA claim and the trial court correctly determined not to address them because it didn't have jurisdiction. If they had squarely raised an APA claim, I think I'm reading your honors question to refer to maybe that USTR and CBP had the authority to set up this framework in the first place. Then I think that they run into a few problems. I think the only way that they could potentially have brought one is through section 1581I, but if they were going to do so, they should have done so within two years of USTR and CBP first coming up with this framework. With the program, so years ago and they haven't done so and now they're outside of the statute of limitations. If they thought that forcing this through, forcing is not the right word, 
requiring them to use the traditional protest of the liquidation, if they thought that that just didn't make sense, wasn't consistent with 301 and the proclamation under 301, and USTR should just have set up a refund system administered by whoever for them to send in a notice saying, I want a refund because you excluded that. Do you think USTR could have done that? I do not. So I think that they would have had to raise the claim in the way that I just mentioned, but I don't think that there would be any merit to that claim in the first place. And why is that? Well, we specifically noted that not only did CBP have the authority to do so, but they were supposed to do so because Section 1500 and Section 1514 taken together mean that CBP is the master of liquidations and classifications. And the way that USTR implemented the 301 decisions in the first place was through the insertion of an HTS subheading that specifically categorized entries as subject to the 301 tariff. So the only way they could then exclude them was through the insertion of another subheading, and that would be effectuated and classified by CBP through liquidation. Moreover, I think appellants raised in their, I can't remember if it was their opening brief or reply brief in front of this court, ways that they theorized that USTR and CBP could have instituted these refunds. However, I don't think that any of them are necessarily statutorily authorized, and I don't believe they raised these potential alternate methods before the trial court, so it's not for this court to consider those in the first instance. What about their, I think, equity point that some of these people didn't seek exclusions, but under exclusions granted, they would have been entitled to the same thing, but it just happened too late in the game for them to take advantage under A. I mean, what should they have done if they didn't want to seek their own exclusion? Is it just that's on them, or is there other steps they could have taken to keep their liquidation open, even if they weren't seeking an exclusion? Because I do think Mr. Kane has a point. You can't just protest if you don't have some disagreement with it, and if you're not seeking exclusion, what would your protest be? So, like usual, a couple different answers to that. I think your Honor's question seems to go to the question of whether their remedy was manifestly inadequate under Section 1581I, and as this court has held, that's a high bar. It has to basically mean that the protest is useless or incapable of producing any result. We completely agree that the exclusions are product-specific, and so other importers or other companies could take advantage of an exclusion that they did not themselves request, so long as they prove to CBP that their products met that exclusion and filed a timely protest. Now, Mr. Kane states that the appellants in this case did not have the chance to do so. I think that in this case, ARP and Harrison are actually in completely different boats. ARP certainly had every chance to file a timely protest because the exclusion requests were granted either before ARP's entries even liquidated or, in one case, only five days into that 180-day period, so they have no excuse whatsoever. With regard to Harrison, I think your Honor asked what could Harrison have done, and CBP 
actually made the process very clear for those importers. On May 22nd of 2019, which was before the exclusion request relevant to Harrison was filed and months before Harrison's entries liquidated, CBP issued guidance in a CSMS message that basically stated that importers should file, I don't remember if they used this term exactly, but we used, and the trial court used the term protective protests on things where they knew that there was an exclusion request pending, but the entries might be liquidated before the request was granted. And then CBP would basically hold the decision on a protest until the exclusion was granted. So CBP foresaw that this might be an issue and specifically carved out a way for protesters to preserve and file a timely protest while waiting for the exclusion decision. And I think even as appellant's counsel pointed out, there was also the opportunity for importers to request an extension of the liquidation. So they actually had a couple different options as to how they could have kept the right to timely protest. And again, as the trial court said, they regrettably dropped the ball and simply did not do so. This does not entitle them to jurisdiction under 1581I as it does not render 1581A inadequate. The only last thing I'd like to say, unless this court has questions, is that we pointed out and the trial court astutely pointed out that USTR's decision on exclusions was not self-executing. It necessarily involved CBP in its traditional role as the liquidator. And this court has held time and again in Xerox, Cemex, Belgium, Hutchinson, Juice, and so on, that liquidations are subject to the timely protest requirement. And that's what we have going on here. I'm happy to answer any other questions. Otherwise, we respectfully request that this court affirm. Thank you. Thank you. Mr. Cain, you have a couple minutes left. Sorry, can you stop? We can't hear you. Okay. Can you hear me now? Yes. I just made the winning argument and you missed it. I have several points that I'd like to make here. The reason, I'm sorry, what the CSMS was a custom service messenger, a message system. It was an electronic message that was available on the internet. It didn't say that importers should protest. It said they may protest. It didn't say that failure to file a protest was going to be damning in any way. It just said you may protest. And at the time, customs and USTR were finding their way through this process. The 2021 GAO report entitled USTR should fully document internal procedures for making tariff exclusion and extension decisions points out a whole 80 pages of shoddiness that the USTR has that they didn't realize what they were dealing with and how it should be dealt with. As far as a program being contested by us, we would not have had standing until we had been denied a refund. The refund system, as your Honor may recall, with the whole maintenance tax was cobbled together by the Department of Justice and customs outside of any kind of statutory, well, any statutory restrictions that was made to effectuate a refund system. 
There's no reason, if Customs was supposed to effectuate the decisions of the USTR, there's no reason why Customs would freeze out entries that were the subject of 301 duties that would not be able to be refunded because the protest statute acted as a bar. The USTR was intending, by making the exclusions, an opportunity to make right the burden that had reasonably been placed on importers of certain products that would have affected U.S. companies and U.S. workers. And by Customs using the protest statute to say, you have 180 days after liquidation to get your refund, that ignored at least 17 rounds of refund that could have been gotten under exclusions that were made by the USTR after 494 days of the initial date of the implementation of that list. I use that date because Customs used a 314-day liquidation cycle plus 180, that's 494. Anything beyond that would be foreclosed from getting a refund. Okay, thank you, Mr. Cain. Your time has expired. We have your arguments, I think. Thank both counsel for their arguments. The case is submitted.